You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Some prefatory comments. This is a lot of prefatory comments before we get into today's sermon. Um, it's rated PG-16, and let me tell you why it's rated PG-16. Not that we don't want people that are younger than 16 to hear about sex, but at the end of the sermon, we'll be specifically talking about marital sex, unless you want very specific questions from your kids <laughs> about marital sex, we don't suggest that they're in here. But if you're like, bring it on, then by all means, keep them in here. Um, now, I realize that over half the church is not married, way over half the church. And as I study and pray uh, to approach this sermon, as I've studied and prayed to approach this sermon, um, I've taken that into account. There are two errors um, of extreme that we have to avoid when it comes to marriage in the church. Here are two extremes that we have to avoid. The first is to make marriage everything in the church. Everything. It's like the goal and the telos of all human meaning. When this happens, those who are not married are stigmatized in the church as not being fully human or fully spiritual. No, until you're married, then you can get involved in the church and get involved in leadership. Unless you're married, you're not fully human. And that can happen in the church. And Paul combats this this week and especially next week. The goal in life is not marriage. The goal in life is Jesus. And that's what this church proclaims. The goal in life is Christ. So if you're single here and you're single until the end of time until Christ comes back, until you die and you're sad. You won't be sad, okay? You won't be sad. (laughs) There are people that go, but I I won't get married and have sex. You won't be sad. You won't, like, get to heaven. I've been studying, I I think there's going to, well, I can't say, actually. I've been studying about sex in heaven, um, and my wife tells me I I can't tell you guys about it yet, because she says, don't say that out loud yet. Um, so you, I don't think that thought is fully formed yet. So I won't say anything. <laughs> but you won't be sad, I think. I know you won't be sad, but... Okay, anyway. Um, the goal in life is Christ. The second extreme that we have to avoid, the second extreme is thinking too little of marriage. This, this can happen as well. This happens when, by thinking marriage is just a piece of paper. We think marriage is just a formality. It's not. Cheapening marriage in this community happens through casual sex, through career over relationships, even cohabitation with your romantic partner does that. More on that next week. So, all of these things having been said, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and usher will bring you one. Um... You're going to be flipping around a little bit in it today, so if you want to raise your hand, I've got some hands here, 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 here. Here they come in the back. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 7. Let me uh, read this to you, and then let me pray. And the reason why is it might be good if you have um, a newer NIV translation. Now, I used to teach from the ESV, but when we moved to this book, I switched over to the NIV 2010, and it's because the way that... The NIV 2010 translates, especially these passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, are probably the best way that you can translate them. They put the quotations in the right spot um, to make more sense of the passage. If you get the quotations wrong, especially here, you can have a real distorted view of sex in marriage. 
So it's very important that you get them right. And so this, this is what it says, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. Okay, they wrote, they wrote Paul a letter. And so it says, for the matters you wrote about. Here's a quote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. And then he writes, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a a concession, not as a command. Let's pray. God, we look to you right now. I know, as we said last week, and um, whenever we talk about sex in a, in a church, it's, first of all, it gets a bit awkward, um, and it shouldn't, but it does. And then we just, all these emotions come just from deep within us. Some of us are just so guilty of our sexual past, or so hurt. So when sex is, the topic is brought up, it just brings up all this pain this guilt. Some of us are so lonely. We've waited for a spouse and we've waited for sex, but it has not happened yet and we're lonely. We need the comfort of Christ today. Some of us are, are married and sex is just not what it's just not what we thought. We thought it was going to be this transcendent, glorious thing and it's it, it's just now just part of life and real life and it's just, it's lost, it's whatever. It's edge, it's fun, it's excitement. And so when we approach this topic, we come from all these different places and we just, I pray that because your spirit is so wise and so good that we lay all these emotions and thoughts and hurts and pains down to you, Jesus, and we say, would you speak to us and would you heal our wounds and would you lead us on the path of righteousness? Would you lead us beside still waters today? For those who need rest, that you would be rest. For those who need a heavy burden of their past lifted, that your yoke, you'd put their yoke upon them. And Lord, if we need to be rebuked because we have just some weird, gross way of seeing sex and even our own bodies, would you repair that today? We submit this to you. I ask that you would um, use me today. Um, This is holy ground, speaking about sex. So I pray I would tread softly and um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's sermon is entitled, The Personality of Sexuality. The Personality of Sexuality. Last week it was the spirituality of sexuality when we were in chapter 6. Today is the personality. And by the word personality, I mean this. Personality being defined as the sum total of the physical, mental, emotional, and social characteristics of an individual. The quality of being a person. So when I say today's teaching is on the personality of sexuality. I mean the personhood of sexuality, the whole person being brought to the act of sex. My premise today is that we were created as whole people and that sex was created to be had not simply with bodies, but with the whole person. Sex is not just a connection of two bodies, but whole personhoods. We have made sex about the body. 
when it's about the whole person. We have settled for body-centered sex rather than person-centered sex. In the book Authentic Human Sexuality, it says this, in person-centered sex, one is intimately and emotionally engaged with the other in a way that creates a deep connection and interdependence. In contrast to this, body-centered sex involves being engaged with the other for the mere pleasure one gains from the encounter. Though passion and pleasure are important aspects of sexual engagement, vital sex is so much more than a bodily release expressed through an orgasm. I am arguing this morning for person-centered sex, holistic sex. My hope is to try to convince you that sex was created for the whole person and to show how marriage and marital sex is truly the only way to accomplish that. That's what I hope to do. Now here's how I'll try to do that. First, I want to talk about the way our culture views sex currently, the way that we see sex currently in our culture. Uh, This is going to be a very quick point. Um, The second way is I I want to say some brief things about the intended reality of sex. Take us back to Genesis a little bit, like like we often do. which out, without which I don't think we can really understand the context and the purpose of sex and sexuality. And then finally at the end, this is the largest point of the sermon this morning, we'll get to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and we'll see what he adds to the conversation. He adds quite a bit to it, what we read today. So first, our, how our culture views sex. Three views. The way our culture views sex is first of all, sex is an appetite. We saw this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Where Paul said, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is not a new idea. Corinth thought and had this view of sex and sexuality. This view sees sex as a perfectly natural appetite that needs to be fed. And as it's being fed, it can be fed with a wide variety of tastes. It can be fed with anything it needs. And not feeding this appetite would be repression. So you are a repressed human if you're not having healthy often, sex often. You're repressed. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. Sex is an appetite needs to be filled. We all grew up with this view if you grew up in public education. If you grew up in public education, right around, I don't know, these days it's like fourth grade, but when I was, it was like junior high and it was super awkward and weird. And Anyway, I won't get into that um, for my therapist. Um, so, <laughs> in, 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 in public sexual education, you're told that there is nothing right or wrong anymore, just that sex is one of the more very important human appetites that needs fulfilling. The irony is, the nature of any appetite is that it's never fulfilled. And so if sex is an appetite, you'll never be fulfilled. Ever. The second view is sex as a necessary evil. This is an ancient church view brought on by a very bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what we just read this morning. There are those who read this, as we read it, with quotations in the wrong place. Now it says, now concerning, now for those matters you wrote about, it is not good for a man to have sex, sexual relations with a woman. Um, ancient views on that verse thought that that was what Paul was saying. He was telling them, hey, it's actually not, it's good. Like, don't, don't have sexual relations with a woman. But if you have to in sex to procreate, just do it. Okay, just get it over with, have babies, and then stop it. It's gross. Like, and that was a very ancient biblical, what people interpret as a, as a um, uh, sex was of this world, and we're the spiritual elite, and being spiritually elite, we're celibate. And we take vows of celibacy because we're holy. And that's not what this is saying at all. Now, sex is a necessary evil 
is seen as, sex is seen as dirty and a holy person should abstain from it. Now, we don't agree with that idea either. That's not what the Bible teaches. The last view, the third view of our culture is probably the most quickly becoming the most dominant view of our society. It's self as, uh, sex is self-expression. Sex is how I express myself. Sex and sexuality is the way I'm, I, I get to be myself or I get to find myself. And I get to, sec- to, use, to, to use, I get to use sex any way I want to use sex. It's mine to use the way I want to use it. And I use it for my own desires. I can use sex to advance my career if I wanted to do that. I can use sex to try and land a good spouse if I wanted to do that. I could use sex to start a family if I choose to. I can use sex to have fun. I can use sex to drown my loneliness for this weekend. I can use sex to identify with a certain community. It's completely up to the individual. Self, uh, sex is self-expression. Under this view, there are no boundaries. There should be no boundaries. It's whatever I desire and how I desire to express myself and find myself. That's the way our culture views sex. Sex is an appetite. Some people think that the Bible thinks that sex is a necessary evil, and then self is, sex is self-expression. But here's the intended reality of sex. Though many people believe that the Bible and the church have a very repressed view of sex and sexuality, the Bible does not, and the church does not. The Bible starts with a vigorously positive statement about sex and sexuality. The Bible starts with a positive statement about sex. It says, naked and unashamed. It says, two become one. It says, it is good, comma, it is very good. That's what the Bible says about sex in the opening pages of Scripture. Now, like I've had you do a million times before, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. This is, I think this is uh, very important when you're talking about sex and sexuality to turn back to Genesis and say, how were we made? How were we created? What was it supposed to be like? Um, And what is God bringing us all back to? What is God restoring in us? Because Christ is a restorer. He redeems us. He restores us. What does he restore us back to? Well, look at verse 18. And, and, And a lot of people think that what happens in verse 18 and or verse 19 is kind of a non sequitur when it comes to sexuality, but it is not. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. This is a very common phrase. Everyone, probably everyone in here knows this. Um, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's very important to understand the word helper. That word there that is that what God is referring to is Eve does not mean someone like someone just to assist. It means to help from strength. It means, um, that word is most often used in Scripture uh, as a uh, pronoun for God. God is our helper. Meaning, I can't do something, God can do it, and he comes in and helps me do it. He's our helper. Woman is a helper. She's not an assistant. She has strengths that man does not have that comes and helps him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground. This is where it sounds like it's a non sequitur, but it's not. It's very important. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in uh, in the sky and all the wild animals. So if you're following along in the narrative, you might think this is a very weird part in Genesis. So God looks at Adam and goes, it's just not good that you're alone. I'm going to make a helper for you. 
I forgot, we have an appointment, you have to name the animals. It's like, ah, oh, really? I was really hoping to get to um, that person you're talking Like, and so he goes, names the animals. Like, it seems like it's like a one-off, but it's not. And this is how we know. Look at the very next verse, um, or at the, the very end of verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. What's implied is that they were looking for a helper. Adam didn't understand his own loneliness. Adam probably said something like, it's not good for men to be alone. God, I have you. I, I, all I need is you. Just me and you. But when he sees all the animals, he sees that they all have counterparts, but he doesn't. And there's no one like him in all the earth. And once he realizes that, he realizes, I am alone. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made woman from the rib that he had taken out of man and brought her to the man. And the man woke up and said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is very beautiful, poetic, Hebraic language here. Verse 24, and that is why. And this verse is so important. I hope that you have it highlighted in your Bible from last year. Um, if you do not, please do that now. This is why man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now, notice in verse 25, the oneness Two shall become one flesh. This is speaking of sex and sexuality. This is very graphic speak. In their speech, in their relationship, it is spoken of as becoming one flesh. This is and is not a metaphor. Husband and wife enter into an institution that points them toward familial, domestic, emotional, and spiritual unity. So in that sense, it's like a metaphor for their oneness. They're one in motion. They're one in and, and, and spiritual unity. They're one domestically. They're one family. They're a different now community. Two now become one flesh. This one fleshness is also literal. This one fleshness that Adam speaks of when he awakens is also very overtly sexual, suggesting sexual intercourse. The spiritual, emotional, and physical act where it is hard to tell when one person's body stops and the other one starts. It's the combining of two lives. I've used this quote before, but John Stott says that sex is actually a reunion. Sex isn't just a union, it's a reunion. Two bodies that were at one time one and then separated become one again because Eve was taken from Adam. And so they're not two alien persons just coming together. On the contrary, they're a union of two persons who were originally one, were then separated, and now in the sexual encounter of marriage come together again. So Genesis 2.25 is where all of Scripture derives a sexual ethic. So if you ever want to understand what the Bible teaches about sex, you have to go to Genesis 2.25 because everything that happens after Genesis 2.25 points back to it. And what Genesis 2.25 does is point forward to our Union with Christ. It's a very important passage of Scripture. So, Genesis 2.25. Here it is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Every single law, every single prohibition, every single rule, guideline, whatever it is, wisdom, that talks about this is the way you're supposed to have sex is protecting this. Because this is the ideal, this is what God, this is how God created it. This is marital covenantal language. Now let me explain this to you, because some of you, I might 
have lost you with all sorts of questions that might enter your mind when I put this verse up and say this is the ideal. But let me, let me show you something real quick. It's what Genesis 2.25 speaks of is commitment. And a commitment that cannot be broken. Love that is more than a feeling. A nakedness that isn't just about not wearing clothes, but about souls that are being exposed. Sex was created for more than bodies connecting. It was rather created for the whole person connecting with the other whole person. That's what sex was created for. Ronald Rollheiser says in his book, The Holy Longing, and I quoted it last week, he says this, In a committed, loving, covenantal relationship, sex is sacramental, meaning sex is sacred. Part of the couple's Eucharist, meaning part of the couple's communion together. It is then a privileged vehicle of grace, an extraordinary source of integration for the soul, a deep well of gratitude, and something that will, through its own inner dynamics, open both persons in a way that perhaps nothing else can to becoming a life-giving, gracious, and blessing adults. Conversely, sex that is devoid of those conditions will normally bring about the opposite effect. It will harden the soul, trivialize it, at work at disintegrating its unity. It will as well not open those engaging in it to real community, graciousness, and blessing, but instead help alienate, help alienate them from real community. So what Ronald Rollheiser is saying is that the power of sex, sex is so powerful. It's, 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 a, it's funny to me, it's absurd to me how many, how many laws we put around powerful things, how, many, how much controls we put around powerful things, but sex, it's all off, all of it, and we don't realize the power of sex. And what Ronald Rollheiser is saying is that what sex does in a marriage, and it makes two people whole, and what it does outside of marriage is it actually tears them apart. Sex is not just like any other thing. Timothy and Kathy Keller write in their book, Meaning of Marriage, which is probably one of the best books on marriage out there today, and highly recommend it for both single and married, single and married people. They write this. Sex is a method that God intended, or God invented, to do whole life entrustment and self-giving. It should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you were literally physically joined. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, you will have to steal yourself. You will have to harden yourself against sex, sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. I'm going to read that again. This is probably, I always say, the most profound thing ever, but this is up there. Because of the power of sex, when you have sex outside of marriage, what you have to do, and it, it, guys, people, if you, if you, men and women, if you read any sort of men's health or women's health magazines, all of them are teaching you how to have sex and like not feel it or rules on casual sex and how do you protect your heart. The reason why all those things have to be in place by people because of the nature of what sex does. And what Timothy and Kathy Keller are saying, if you use sex outside of marriage, you will have to harden yourself against sex's power. You will have to tell yourself, that's not what sex is used for. You have to reprogram your soul. You have to reprogram the way you were made. And you'll have to, so because sex's power was to soften your heart towards another person and make you feel more trusting toward them. And then he goes on, they go on. And the problem is that eventually, 
sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if one day you do get married. Ironically, then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. The Bible and the church are not prudish when it comes to sex. It is not that we have such a low view of sex that we believe it calls for chastity. It's because we have such a lofty view of sex that we call for chastity. We believe in sex's power, its ability to take two lives and make them one again. We believe in its power. Sex has the purpose of uniting two people, not just bodies, but whole persons. Sex has the power and the purpose of co-creating with God. Sex leads to children. I know some of you guys are like, oh, wow. That still happens. Sex is just better when you're not trying to prevent pregnancy. That's just a fact. Sex has the purpose of reenacting the promise of the marriage vow. Every time you're having sex, you're recommitting yourself to your vows again. That is, you're committing yourself to fidelity and preference, and sacrifice, and service, and love, and commitment, and intimacy, all those things that you vowed at, your, at the altar of holy matrimony, everything you vowed, you're, you're practicing that commitment over and over again. Sex is supposed to be a microcosm of marriage. And by macrocosm, I mean a small part that contains the whole thing. Sex is supposed to be a microcosm of the entirety of marriage. Sex is like a small, powerful, passionate, fiery, uh, representation of the whole marriage. A small part that contains the whole thing. Sex speaks of total giving, total trust, and total commitment. There is an unconditionality inherent in so intimate a sharing of one's soul through sexual intimacy. Thus, if real trust and commitment and permanency and unconditionality are not present within the wider relationship, sex is a lie. Now, this is where Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 comes in. This is where I'm going to transition to marital sex for a second. And people that are single, I think you should still pay close attention to this. Paul says in verse 1 in chapter 7, Now, for the matters you wrote about. So they write him a letter, and this is in their letter, they have this quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, some were taking the spirituality that Paul was talking about a little too far in something called asceticism. This is what was happening in Corinth. People were going, I'm holy, and I I started following Jesus, and I'm so holy, I don't need sex anymore. And Paul says, if you're single, that's great, but if you're married, that's not okay. And there were women who were getting, who were married, who were coming to the church and telling their husbands, I'm too holy to have sex now, I'm spiritual. And um, I, don't, I don't want to have sex anymore. And there are actually men doing the same thing, going, I'm not going to have sex with my wife anymore. But here's the weird combination. Because of, because of the nature of Corinth, as we talked about last week, where they didn't really care about their bodies, married men were not having sex with their wives. They were saying whenever they were lusting or whatever, they would just go to a prostitute. So this was happening in the church. Wives and husbands not having sex and people going to prostitutes. People thinking, I'm so holy, I don't need sex anymore. This was going on in the church. So Paul tells the people in chapter 6, and this is what I think is, is very, very interesting, and it connects chapter 6 and chapter 7, so follow along with me for a second because this is important. Paul tells everyone in chapter 6 
Stop having sex. Porneia. And what porneia means is anything outside of Genesis 2, 24, and 25. But he tells married couples in chapter 7 to start having sex. So what Paul does as a good pastor is trying to keep everyone from porneia. Everything outside of Genesis 2, 24, and 25, he tries to keep everyone outside of that. And the way he does it with the unmarried crowd is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Your body's not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is what he tells single people. He says, sexual immorality is happening. Therefore, flee. Run from sexual immorality. Why? Because your bodies matter. They're redeemed by Jesus. Your bodies belong to Jesus. Honor God with your bodies by living chaste, holy lives. Okay? Your body's not your own. It belongs to Jesus. Flee sexual immorality. Okay, but look at what he tells the married couples. Look at verse uh, chapter 7. But since sexual immorality, say same word, porneia, he was telling single people, hey, flee porneia, flee sexual morality. And what he tells the married couples is since porneia is around you, since you live in a culture that is obsessed with sexual immorality, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Okay, here's what's happening. Sexual morality was happening, but Paul says to the married couples, don't flee, have sex. With your spouse, by the way. Just in case you were confused by that. Have sex with your spouse. So Paul is saying no to their slogan, as it pertains to married couples. So they're saying, hey, it's not good for a man to not touch a woman. He's like, no, no, no. If you're married, touch your wife. If you're married, have sex with your wife. Now, why would Paul say this? And look what he says here. He says, your bodies matter, but you do not belong to you. You belong to Jesus, and your bodies belong to your spouse. To the single people, he said, you don't belong to you. Your bodies belong to Jesus. To the married people, he says, your bodies don't belong to you. Your bodies belong to Jesus and your spouse. Don't deny them. Therefore, yield your bodies in honor to God by having sex. So why would Paul say something like this? Look at verse 3. It said, husbands and your wife, you both have a duty to have sex. Now, that might sound a little weird. The huge emphasis here is on, is on obligation. This is the language of obligation. Remember, sex is a microcosm of marriage. Marriage is a relationship of obligation, covenant obligation. So spe- sex speaks to this. The reason why sex is an obligation in marriage is because of everything we've said already about sex. You, you should have sex. Sex is powerful. It's sacramental. It's sacred. Sex is a part of the Eucharist. It's a part of communion that you have with your spouse. It is a vehicle of grace. It's a vehicle of service. It integrates the soul and the body. It's life-giving. It's gracious and it's fun. Have sex as a married couple. But another simple reason Paul points out that you should have sex is it keeps us from sexual morality. This is a point that I don't think we dwell on too much. See, the purpose of marriage is to see the glory of God revealed in your spouse. 
That is the, that is the per, why, why am I getting married to this person? I see something in them that God is doing to make them more holy. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book call it their future glory self, if you've read that book. There's something in them that God is doing, and then as a spouse, I want to bring that out. Now, have you ever thought that part of your duty to bring their future glory self out is through sexual intimacy? Husbands, there is a part of your sexual life where you have to realize that you have to have sex with your wife to keep her holy. Does that change the way you see her and the way you have sex? I'm having sex with you, making love to you to keep you holy. Wives, is there a part of your sexual life with your husband where you realize that you, you are making love with your husband, you are having sex with your husband to keep him holy? We live in a very, very over-sexualized society. And as you're married to each other, one of your jobs is to keep the other person holy. And the way that, we, the, the way that Scripture says to do that is by having sex. Now, before this gets weird, or actually it's probably already gotten weird, but... And you start to think uh, that biblical, the biblical view of, of, of marital sex is a deme- demeaning in any sort of way. Like, wait, it's an obligation? How demeaning? Like guys can demand sex a certain way and wives have to do that? Or a woman, is, a woman could demand sex a certain way and a husband has to do that? That's not what this is saying here. The emphasis on obligation is, not, is, a, is a, a duty not like you owe me. That's not what Paul's saying. You don't go to your spouse and go, you owe me. It's like this. I personally owe you. I'm yielding my body to you. Now, that might not work with the guys so well. Like, guys, don't walk up to their wives and go, babe, I owe you this body. (laughs) So, wives don't, I don't know, that might not work well. Wives are like, ah, it's called even. Let's just. (laughs) Like, that might not work that well in that situation, but that's kind of what it's saying there. Maybe it does work in your situation. Um, I don't know. But that's what it's saying. It's like, I owe you my, my, my body, my person, everything. I yield it to you. This is what Paul is saying here. This is, this is what he's saying. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her hus- husband. In the same way, the mutuality here is brilliant. It goes back and forth. In the same way, husband, you don't have authority over your own body, but you yield it to your wife. The word yield is so vital in this passage. You cannot demand authority. If you are demanding sex, you're doing it completely wrong. You cannot go up to your wife and say, that body is mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. (laughs) I'm doing what I want with that body. That is not authority. Okay, remember how he said sex is a microcosm of marriage? You can't do that in marriage either. You can't go, look, go, walk up in marriage and go, I have authority, and you will do what I say. That is not authority. Authority is yielded. The wife yields to the authority of her husband, and the husband yields to the authority of his wife. It's mutuality. In sex, it's a microcosm of that. That's how sex is supposed to be. The wife says, this body belongs to Jesus and you, and I yield it to you. And the husband says the same thing. Authority is yielded. 
I yield my body to you. And when, the hu- when a wife yields her body to her husband, the husband now is taking rightful stewardship over it, meaning he's caring and loving and nurturing. nurturing. And likewise, the wife is doing that same thing with her husband's body. Sex is a microcosm. It's supposed to be like this in marriage, but sex is a passionate incarnation of this reality. Now, here's a side note. Women were personal property in the ancient Near East in Paul's day. So when Paul was saying that wives, your body belongs to your husband, that was common knowledge. That was like, yeah, of course, I own her. She's like my wife. But when Paul, what Paul said next was revolutionary. No one, no one has said this before. This is actually the first time this has ever been said in history. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. Yeah, duh. Husbands, your body also belongs to your wife. You guys submit to each other in marriage. This was unheard of. Now, the Bible advocates for total mutuality in marital sex. It was countercultural then, and I believe there are aspects of it that are very countercultural today. And then Paul says this, verse 5, do not deprive each other. Deprive. You need to, some of you married couples need to go home and talk about this word. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent. Do you see the mutuality there? I'm not going to deprive you, you deprive me, but we're going to agree on it if we're going to deprive one another. We're going to agree, agree on it. Mutual consent. And why? <laughs> to devote yourselves to prayer. Like, Paul's like, okay, okay, you can stop, but only to pray, but just don't pray that long. Now, you guys can fast and pray, but just come together again, because Satan, to, Satan wants to destroy you as married couples. Destroy you and destroy your marriage. Guys, if you, if, if husbands, if you think your life with your spouse is like, well, she just doesn't like, I feel like I'm not giving, she's not giving her body to me and, and, or her life to me or her whole person to me. And wise, if, you, if you're just thinking that, well, he, he, can, he has to fight his own battles and if he's tempted or whatever, you are a part of his holiness and vice versa, the same thing. And this is why it says do not deprive each other. Now, de- deprive, this word here is striking. It means to defraud. It means to take away what is rightfully, what rightfully belongs to another person. Paul's saying when you don't have sex with your spouse, you're robbing them of something that belongs to them. I read this quote last week and it struck me pretty profoundly. It said, it is painful to sleep alone, but it's perhaps even more painful to sleep alone when you're not sleeping alone. There are married couples going to bed with their spouse but feel completely alone. You feel deprived. Wives may feel deprived of connection sex, sex that connects two souls together, where she feels like her husband is making love to more than her body. She, de- she might feel deprived of sex with her whole personhood. Wives, you should speak up. Tell your husband this. Please don't tell him Sex with him is bad. That will destroy him and crush him. Tell him you need more romance or you need a date night or you need more conversation before or after or you need more foreplay or whatever. Tell them that. But men may feel the same way. Men may feel like your wife just lies there and says get it over with. Men need connection too. Sex was created for the whole person. Don't deprive one another 
That might be a really obvious, this might have really obvious implications as well, like you're married and you're not having sex. What I find fascinating about this passage is Paul says, do not deprive one another. You know what that means? It means not just one person is being deprived if there's no sex in your relationship. You both are being deprived. You're both being deprived, even if only one person feels deprived, because sex is a microcosm. And it says, by mutual consent and for a time. The rule here in marriage is mutuality. The rule in marriage is agreement. The rule in marriage is partnership and total submission of your rights and your bodies to the other. This is why when we started this morning, it started with what we believe in our culture about sex, but here's what sex was intended for. And as you move beyond to marital sex, and it's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, you understand the, the power of it. And it's, on, it's need of ongoing communication, ongoing help, ongoing pursuit, ongoing submission, ongoing yielding. The main point of this entire thing that Paul is saying is that you don't belong to you. If you're single, you belong to Jesus. If you're married, you belong to Jesus and to your spouse. And you yield that over to them, willingly, lovingly. I want to close our time by talking about law and grace really fast. We need the law. And by law, I mean we need God's revealed will. We need God's word. We need restrictions. We need protection. This is why God protects Genesis 2, 24 and 25. It keeps us living into our created order. It protects us. It protects God's intended reality. We need the law. But we need grace. A lot of us need grace because no one measures up to the ideal. There is no marriage, myself, my marriage included, that does not, that, that lines up to what, what the scriptures, everything I'm saying, my marriage doesn't even line up. No, no one does. We need grace. We need grace because of infidelity. There are people in here that have, that have cheated on your spouse. Sexual immorality is rampant. Shame, hurt. Loneliness, we need grace. And the grace that's given to us all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is the grace that's found in Christ alone. And this is how you know it. It's not explicit, it's implicit. And this is how it's implicit. Paul keeps pushing everyone back to don't do this to become someone. Do this because you are someone. So you don't adhere to these rules to be the person that God accepts. You do these things because you are the person that God accepts. You flee sexual immorality because Christ now is, makes his home in your heart. The reason why you love your spouse this way is because your marriage, Christ is the sin. Because Christ is so, has shown you so much grace and continues to then live this way. If you felt guilty from the opening two sentences of this entire sermon, you're not alone. We need grace. That grace is offered to us freely by Jesus Christ who took our place, who died a single man, who went to bed alone every single night, who can suffer with those who go alone to bed every single night, but also the one who marries us 
as his bride, who cleanses us, who takes us off our filthy rags and clothes us with a white purity dress. I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) This is what Christ does. This is what he does in our, not just our physical body. So if if I was reading, let me, I, I promise I'll close right here. As, as if I was reading those in the middle part of that sermon, especially those quotes about what sex does, and you feel completely guilty that I've used and abused sex so much, what if it's lost its, its power, its covenant-committing power? Jesus said what's impossible with man is possible with God. Like it might be an impossibility to ever feel like you're sexually restored, but it might be an impossibility to doctors, to therapists, to counselors, but it's not an impossibility to God. He can restore. He could redeem. We need God's law, but we need God's grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that your word is just so honest and so real. I thank you for this church and their attentiveness through the difficult topics that we go through, but at the end, or as we, as we just end our time right now, we realize our need for grace. Married couples, we need grace. Single people, we need grace. God, Jesus, we need your grace. Because we can't, we can't, we can't do this like law. It's just so hard. And so we need forgiveness, and then we need your grace to carry forward. It's because of the gospel that and what you've done that, that, that changes our heart, that rewires our heart to make us want to follow your laws, where we look at your word and we go, this is beautiful and this is right and this is good and I want to follow this. And so I pray against anyone who feels that they have to do something to be accepted right now. The work of God is just to simply believe. I pray they would trust in you. And we confess their sin and turn to Christ. In Jesus' name.